This is a Media Lab podcast. Welcome to Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine. My name is Kyle. I'm Dave. And I'm the Machine. This is a podcast where a sentient machine is forcing us each season to watch movies from a specific year in order to prevent it from starting the apocalypse. The machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to, although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today, we're going to be watching the film E.T. The Extraterrestrial. He's lost. He's alone, and he's three million light years from home. In spring 2002, only in theaters, I'm keeping you. Steven Spielberg's masterpiece will come to life for a whole new generation. Of course, a big thank you to our patrons over on Patreon. Their contributions help us continue this show since the machine doesn't help us pay for these movies. Plus, each month we do a bonus episode over there as well. Now, Dave, before we jump in and talking about our history of this film, we do have this, like, as we discovered last week, this huge interdimensional door that helps us bring guests through. But that is also what caused us to be thrown into space. This is our deep and rich fiction that we've been building over two and a half years. We're in space right now? No, we're back. No. On Earth. Oh, yeah. Dave, it's like you don't right. pay attention to me every week no. as I give this preamble. Sorry. What are we? What are you talking about? Oh, wait. Sorry, Dave. Shut up. We have a knock on the door. Let me just see. Matt Koblick. Oh, my oh. gosh. Thank you for c- coming through space and time to join us here. Thank you for answering the door. <laughs> You're welcome. I just love the fact that we do have guests that decide, oh, a random interplanetary portal device. I'm going to step through this. Yeah. The best stories are made by someone saying yes and. So <laughs> correct. This is probably why I never make good stories. I got a quick <laughs> no for everything. Just like slam the door. No, thank you. <laughs> Matt, of course, people will probably also know you from your own podcast called Broadway Breakdown. See, I know because I'm listening here in real time that you're currently going through the uh, the shows of Janine Tesori. Mm-hmm. Although I don't know if you're still going to be doing that at the end of March. So you might. <laughs> no, she'll be she'll be closing out, I think, midway through March. We are recording mm-hmm. this. We're famously recording this at the end of February. And right. Janine will be done probably by like March 10th, I think. So mm-hmm. but there, uh, so when this comes out, there will be a little bit of a break between Janine and the next series. So right. stay tuned. Yeah, that's great. I mean, you often like do like deep dives into the specific shows, like people that are influential mm-hmm. in Broadway and stuff like that. Um, if you wanted to pitch somebody to go and listen to your show, how would you do that? So I'm going to say something. And it's going to be a little shady to other people and their endeavors. But I'm just going off of my experience. For anyone who doesn't know, by the way, Kyle also has another podcast uh, that's on Sondheim. I've been on that before. And I very much enjoy that podcast. So when I say what I'm about to say, Kyle is excluded from this statement. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Um, If you love love Broadway, but you find that Broadway podcasts are either A, pretty fun, but filled with misinformation, or B, filled with correct information and dry as hell my podcast is for you because it is very informative but we try to keep it very fun uh someone left a review recently that was like walter kerr who is an old new york times critic mixed with Mm -hmm. like elaine stritch 
and you got me. And I'm like, yeah, that's kind of it. You know, like I do these really deep analysis on shows and discuss sort of the complexity of Broadway history. And then I make like a gay sex joke. And and everyone's like, where did that come from? I'm like, I don't know, but it just did. And then somehow I find ways to mix in like sex in the city with working girl with Sondheim. And like it works. It always works. So that's that's my pitch, everybody. Hope you hopefully that's enough for you. Right. We need at least four gay references by the end of this episode just to well, put you on the spot here. Honey, we picked the right movie then. <laughs> exactly. I mean, we are talking about, of course, E.T. here this week, like. It almost feels dumb to be like, we're going to talk about E.T. as if it hasn't already been talked to death in many ways. Mm. Like this is one of the most probably talked about movies, A, because it's directed by Steven Spielberg, B, because it's such a seminal movie of the 80s anyways. But to start off with, Dave and I have already kind of gone into a huge depth as far as our own backstories with Steven Spielberg when we talked about uh, Duel last season. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if people want to hear more on that, they can go back to that episode. But Matt, what's your history with Steven Spielberg? Oh, geez. I'm not sure I really have one, to be perfectly honest. Oh. I, mean, I was never a kid who, when he saw movies, was aware of who was making the movies. Mm. Ironically, I mean, like I think the first movie I saw in a theater where I was very aware that it was a specific person directed. It was Moulin Rouge with Baz Luhrmann. And then I made it a point to see his other movies. And obviously he's got a very specific aesthetic. And so I would say probably around like 13, 14 was when I really kind of got into movies that way and became aware of aesthetics. And that was both positive and negative because then I realized some directors I just flat out don't like uh, some Mm -hmm. who have maybe won Oscars. But Spielberg, I guess, like, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, his movies were definitely a part of my childhood, I suppose but I never really knew that they, that they were his movies. E.T. really wasn't one that like was a big part of my childhood either because I was much more of a Disney kid. So I'd seen E.T., I'm, I'm sure of it. I'd seen Jurassic Park once or twice. Actually, no, the movie where I became aware that Steven Spielberg was Steven Spielberg was Saving Private Ryan because that movie sure. meant a lot to my dad. Uh, he saw it quite a few times and I was told about it. And then when it lost Best Picture to Shakespeare in Love, I was very aware of sort of that upset. And so I be right. yeah. So that was when I became aware of Spielberg. And then when he was rumored to do the Harry Potter movie, that as well. Yeah. Shakespeare in Love is not the best movie of that year. <laughs> Listen, I will I will I will defend Shakespeare in Love. Whether you think it's the best it's, movie it's of that good. year is up for debate, but that is a phenomenal movie. And I'm not upset that it has won Oscars. I'll put it that way. It's one of those weird things, too. Like, Dave and I always have this bit of a fight, anyways, about relevancy in the Oscars, mm-hmm. full stop. Because it's bullshit. Yeah. Every mo- <laughs> Any movie that wins Best Picture, either it's like, well, that wasn't my favorite picture of the year, or is it like everyone's coming in expecting a very different type of movie because yeah. it's one, quote unquote, Best Picture. So it's like you can never win, really, and, <laughs> by winning Best Picture. I mean, we can talk about this more when we talk about E.T. as well, but. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, the way I look at Best Picture winners are honestly just like it's a time capsule of that year. And you look back and go, mm-hmm. what was sort of the common uh, mentality with this? So, and and it's, it's always interesting to see Best Picture winners that have kind of been washed away. And then like the one that didn't win is the one that's become like super iconic. Exactly. Uh, Shakespeare in Love is this very specific situation for me. And there are a couple of others like it where it's, you know, whether you think it's it deserved to win or not, like it gets a bad rep because so many people are like, well, clearly Safe and Private Ryan's the better movie. And it's like Shakespeare in Love is still a very, very good movie. This is not like mm. a Forrest Gump Pulp Fiction situation where you're like, really? Right. Forrest Gump made $500 million <laughs> domestic before inflation? Like, <laughs> yeah, we'll talk a lot about probably this too when we get into uh, the backstory and stuff of of this film. But yeah, if we, if we even if we were just talking about like 
quote unquote cultural relevance, however you want to term that. Mm-hmm. I would probably say E.T. has a bit more cultural relevance than Gandhi, which won Best Picture that year. So, oh, yeah. Well, so I mean, I don't know if have either of you ever watched Gandhi? Uh, we might be doing that next week. OK, well, so I mean, <laughs> but I have not. I have not seen it. I think Dave has. So it, you, you can always bleep this part out, but because I've never seen yeah. Gandhi and it looks Every time I've seen clips of it and I've sort of read reviews on it at the time, and it just seems like a very like a perfectly fine, well-made, but sort of by the numbers biopic that's long mm-hmm. and feels important and, you know, very much what Oscars love. And you would think that and part of you would go, yeah, sure. Like, I get then why in 1982 they would pick it because it's such catnip. But then you go, but wait, E.T. was the highest grossing movie of all time up until that point. Of all time. And also yeah. was critically praised and also like was right. in the zeitgeist and was everyone was like, oh, my God, this thing is astounding. And it won the Golden Globe for best drama. Like this should have been an easy slam dunk for the Oscars. Like this should have been yeah. the Titanic of 82 where they're like, yeah, but of course. And then they went. This, eh. this is why I really I, I, I know like this will never, ever happen. I, this is why I want them to release, like, after 30 years or something, the actual vo- vote count. Because I want to know how close it was. Mm. Was it, like, 10 votes that Gandhi won by? Or was it... No, like, they totally went that way. I think they totally it was went that way. Missed. Because if yeah. you look at the yeah. winners, like, it also won director and screenplay. Like, E.T. Mm-hmm. E. kind of went off with some technical stuff. I think the nominating yes. committee probably was hoping E.T. was going to do better with the voting pool than it did. I mean, but it's also possible that those three categories was like five to ten votes each. Like, who knows? Yeah, we'll just never know. We'll never know. This is the this is the inherent problem with awards is uh, we give them too much value. Yeah. You know, it's a closed room of, especially in the 80s and 90s, of small, uh, high-end right. industry people. It's highly manipulatable. And I think as well, it's self-important. So you brought up Matt, you know, with Gandhi. Yeah, it's a by the numbers biopic. It's dealing with what was a very big fallout of a big cultural event in India and Asia at the time, uh, like, you know, 30 years later, but still this mythic uh, character of Gandhi, because uh, America's going through some spiritual problems around that time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you look at that as an academic, and then you look at E.T. and be like, yeah, people went to see it, but it's a fucking mm-hmm. alien. You know, this is but a real person. <laughs> Yeah, hindsight's kind of funny. I think one of the biggest problems right now is we have too many genres. So what what does the best movie mean anymore? Yeah. Right? It's not best selling. It's not most well constructed. It's something completely different. So, you know, Oscars are a shame. This is all to say here, Matt. Like, what is your, you you kind of touched on this, but what is your history with E.T. then? I mean, again, like, I don't really have one. It was never like a part of my growing up i was always aware of it and again i had seen it i obviously everyone has seen it um i don't think you can yeah. make it past age nine and not see it uh and i had seen it a few times when i was a child and then i don't think i i saw it again until college and i remember watching it in college and going oh this movie is fantastic and then i hadn't watched it again since this uh recording uh right. where i was reminded yes yet again that it is fantastic but also there are some plot points that i completely <laughs> forgot about which we will talk about i'll just jump in here right now and basically echo that i think for me at least i kind of take for granted this movie in a way for whatever reason i just feel like the way that i enjoy spielberg movies at least his early stuff like there's jaws for me i've always enjoyed close encounters and there's indiana jones and even though this was such a cultural touchstone this is always like like the 
a minus level for me, I guess, for lack of a better word. It's like just like a touch down. But then every time I watch, I'm like, oh, yeah, no, this is really good. It's really well constructed. I don't know why I don't hold this in such like higher regard normally in my head. I think it's because it feels like such the obvious choice, right? right? Like if people say, oh, what's your favorite Hitchcock? And you say Psycho, they're like, oh, how obvious. It's like, no, but Psycho is also perfect. And right. people like to kind of come up with very interesting answers. And sometimes with the UT, like it is the right answer. I also want to be very clear for anyone who's ever listened to my podcast or has listened to me talk to Kyle before about my father. I did not like my father sitting me down and showing me movies as a kid was never like, here are all the classics I loved as a boy. Like here are all the kids movies, because obviously like we had all the Disney collection and I was obsessed with that, but he would you know sit me down and show me the apartment and some like it hot. And like, that was how I grew up with movies, not yeah. uh, E.T. or Lassie or Old Yeller and right. stuff like that. And today we're going to watch The Red Shoes. <laughs> uh, don't tease me. I would love to do that right now. Dave, have you ever watched The Red Shoes? Uh, I don't think so. I do <laughs> notice now why you guys are friends. You guys are such nerds, Jack Lemon. How dare you, Rick? Um, uh, <laughs> how dare you? The, the Red Shoes is an interesting movie, and I would very much like to hear your take on it when you do eventually watch it. It's a, it's sure. a wild movie. I think it yeah. works, and the fact that it works is mind-boggling. When you like list all the things that that movie has going on in it, you're like, wait, really? Over two-hour movie with a 20-minute ballet in the middle that has nothing to do with anything, and <laughs> built made in 1947. And one of the main characters is probably gay, but he can't say because it's can't 1947. It's wild. Yeah. it's wild. I love it so much. There's also a character in this podcast who can't say they are gay. Try to guess which one. Dave, let's just say, what is your history with E.T.? I mean, it's E.T. Everybody knows E.T. Everybody mm. remembers that his finger glows. Everybody knows the bikes will fly. Uh, I think that to something you brought up earlier, why don't we talk about this more in the pantheon of Spielberg? I mean, we do because everybody yeah. knows it's Spielberg film. I think it's because this is characterized as a kid's movie. And uh, whether it ought to be mm. or not is, is arguable, but it stars very young children who are actually children, not like 20-year-olds pretending to be five. And, you know, the uh, story arc, even though it is timeless, as we'll learn, because we haven't technically watched it yet, uh, what I remember about it are children who are love an alien and they glow and that's all I can kind of put together in my in my memory and like you I've watched this as an adult but as an adult if I watch this and I watch Raiders I'm gonna remember Raiders of the Lost Ark more I, it's just a association thing now we'll see after we sit down and watch this mm -hmm. together mm -hmm. in the deep and rich fiction uh, whether I agree with that thought or not but, yeah you know. I will I will say this so definitely watch this as a kid Dave, you were born pre-ET, not to <laughs> call you out on wow. your age or anything like yes. that. I was, of course, born after E.T. For whatever reason, like E.T. has just always been ever present. Like there was toys, there was video games, there was comic books. Like, like I just remember E.T. always kind of being there. And then uh, definitely I watched it a couple times as a kid, probably recorded off of a TV. That's probably what happened <laughs> when I first encountered it. There was a 20th anniversary edition released in... 2002 and i was like really into movies at this point collecting it i still have that 20th anniversary dvd <laughs> collection here because it came with like the soundtrack it came with like a still from the movie who knows uh -huh. what it actually was but it was like they gave you like this little still and this little placard and everything but that edition got uh, very roundly criticized because it's like the one and only time that Spielberg like went back and retooled some stuff. He George Lucas did. He did. Yeah. So he, they did some more like special effects. They made the guys with guns when they like fly the bikes up have walkie talk or yeah have walkie talkies instead of holding guns. And then Spielberg kind of came back 
a couple years later, the mistake should never have done it. And they've never kind of re-released that version again. It's always the the original version that you'll now see on even the streaming platforms. That is to say, it has been a long time since I've seen it. It's probably been since that 20th anniversary that I've actually sat down and watched it start to finish, even though I know all of the iconic scenes. So I'm excited to just kind of see it again and to see how it holds up and how it all uh, fits together. So let's do that. Let's go ahead and watch this movie. And then when we return, we'll be talking a little bit more about E.T., the extraterrestrial. I think I want to like craft a physique that is exactly the same as E.T. You're pretty close. You have a pretty long neck. I just, you gotta... You know, I can just stretch it out. Yeah. I need to stub your legs though. Mm. Than what I have. I'll have to cut off two of your toes. Actually, just one more of my toes technically. But yes, oh. you're right. We learned something new. Interesting. Something new every day. This is why I don't have any good balance. Listen, Dave, Kyle and Dave versus the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta based businesses and organizations. This week, we're brought to you by Pod Power. And with Pod Power, our sponsors are making it possible for us to amplify the voices of Albertans and Alberta podcasters. This episode, the Edmonton Community Foundation is helping us give a Pod Power shout out to uh, Bookwoman. Bookwomen is a podcast about editing, publishing, and writing Indigenous stories. Three Métis librarians representing nations from across the homeland aim to inspire Indigenous peoples to share their stories in whatever form that they enjoy. Guests include Indigenous storytellers from diverse mediums like podcasting, burlesque, books, comics, social media, films, music, and everything in between. You can listen and find out more at bookwomenpodcast.ca. Nice. What do you have for me, Dave? We are also sponsored wait we are also sponsored by atb nice i am lost i had one i scripted away okay <laughs> i'm sure all you folks listening to this want to learn about how atb supports local businesses atb was built to help those businesses from ceba applications to lending information debt consolidation loans or deferrals whatever your business is facing right now ATB is here to help with expert advice. And with today's economy top of mind in business, stay up to date with the future of. Should we reverb that? Podcast. <laughs> future of, 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 of. It's hosted by ATB's chief economist, Todd Hirsch. To learn more, visit ATB.com. Love it. Oh. You corporate shill. Well, this is, this is like us having Reese's Pieces in our show, Dave. <laughs> it's not, you know, it's like uh, Eminem saying no. That's what it's like. All right, so we have now watched the movie. Uh, two hours just flies by uh, when you're, you're on the couch. Matt, if, if someone was to come to you and just ask you, just purely on a plot level, like, what is E.T. about? How would you describe that? E.T. is about a young boy named Elliot living in California who discovers that there is an extraterrestrial in his backyard accidentally left there by his people. And it is about how the two make a connection and build a friendship and how Elliot must ultimately help E.T. get back to his home planet. Uh, that is as succinct as I think I can make it. Yeah. But I'm also shortchanging a lot of the fun and emotions of the story. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess, you know, coming at it now after a few years of not seeing it, uh, what were your immediate thoughts on E.T.? Because everyone knows this movie, everybody can listen to an episode like this and well, they'll know what mm -hmm. we're talking about. Like it's all right. 
I I am a weird person who likes to listen to podcasts about things I've never watched before. So I'm listening to Blank Check and they're talking about Bright Star. Yeah. I've never seen Bright Star, but I like listening to them talk about it. Anyway, takeaways from ET. Uh, full disclosure, I do not like children. Sorry, Dave. Uh, <laughs> I don't like kids. <laughs> flat just <laughs> flat comment. <laughs> don't don't like them. Don't don't enjoy them. Don't find them to be anything great. Uh, don't like them in life and don't like them in movies. That said, when there is like a good kid, I but either as a person or as an actor, I am very aware and I find it very special. So a movie like this. Uh, is actually kind of an anomaly for me because not only do I enjoy the movie despite it being about kids, I think all the performances of the kids in it are great. Uh, I was shocked at how good Henry Thomas is as, as Elliot. Um, yeah. Like the le- like he's so endearing but not precious, and that is really hard to do. And the movie is very earnest, but has a very kind of what's I'm looking for a sarcastic sense of humor about it. And the movie's also not precious about how kids can kind of suck like these kids yeah. are not like are not adorable the entire time like even Elliot himself he's you know he's a good kid but he's not a saint and we see that pretty early in the movie when he's kind of trolling his mom about the dad leaving mm-hmm. so I, I appreciate that I was like yeah no drag Elliot for Phil for being for being a rude little <laughs> well bitch. yeah there's actually this great video you can find on YouTube of uh, Henry Thomas auditioning to be in this movie mm-hmm. and you actually hear uh, Spielberg in the background as soon as he stops like you got it kid like because he does he does like full breakdown in tears mm-hmm. and then kind of comes out of it and it's like oh that was pretty great <laughs> what you just did in the audition room yeah like you're not we're not gonna find anything better than this so here you go this is this is your big break I also have to say too I also like how this movie isn't afraid to be pretty scary like I would assume that even kids nowadays there's some moments that are like this is getting pretty intense I would say for young kids to be watching this. Yeah, well, that's something that I realized watching it as well, because I've had the same thought. Um, 80s films like this and, you know, Goonies and whatever, there's always a genuine danger when it's being presented. It's never like, oh, uh, they're bad, but they're kind of silly or like they're bad, but they'll find like the error of their ways. Like they're these are adults who are bigger and have more resources and are out on a mission. And that is a scary thought and these kids can often are often in like genuine danger and i think that's good for kids to see because while it is scary in the moment it helps them in the future uh to not mm. be so guarded so i, I like that dave what were your thoughts yeah i don't know if it was scary i'm just trying to think of a counterexample of a kid's movie that we've watched recently but i don't think we watched 1971 they didn't make movies for children they just yeah, made movies that for is assholes, weird so. i mean <laughs> We did watch bed knobs and broomsticks and has no actual Nazis in it, but I mean, it's like, I've never actually seen that movie. I mean, to be fair, I guess Disney was on the decline in the seventies. So it was, there wasn't much out there for the children. I'll say this just uh, not that I know what the machine is going to tell us to, to review here this year. Disney does not have an animated movie that comes out in 1982, but there is a ton of animated movies that come out in 1982. So you'll get like, uh, the Last Unicorn, Secret of Nim. Mm. Uh, there's something else. Secret, Secret <laughs> I'm of Nim. Here, so there's probably like a Care Bears movie at this point too. The, oh, the 80s are a wild decade when it comes to cinema. There are some fantastic movies, and then there are some bonkers movies. I don't know if either mm-hmm. you're familiar with the Helen Hunt, Sarah Jessica Parker, Shannon Doherty teens like Girls Want to Have Fun. Mm. No, I've heard of it, but I've never actually seen it. It is literally a room of executives 
looked at because it comes at the tail end of the 80s. It's a room filled with executives, basically sat down, wrote on a piece of paper. Let's look at every single teen movie that made over 30 million dollars this decade. What to smush them together. Exactly. What do they each have? And like take one piece from all of them. So like there's a dance competition. There's like a kid's sister who comes out of nowhere. There's a music video section. There are nuns doing gymnastics. It's so crazy. I'm obsessed with it because it's a cocaine. It's always been my theory. Any movie that has nuns and gymnastics, easy 30 mil at the box office. (laughs) It's science. I mean, these are executives. They know what they're doing. It's that movie is a cocaine fueled fever dream and I'm obsessed with it. Uh, I was going to say a lot of coke in the 80s. Yeah. And E.T. is a movie where you put it down on paper, you're like, clearly that's a cocaine fueled fever dream. And then you watch it, you're like, oh, no, this movie's just so innocent and delightful. Yeah. Yeah. It's also shot so beautifully, too. I think that's the thing. I don't think it's scary in a gore or a fear sense, but it's suspenseful. And it's shot because he's so good at mood lighting. I I wanted to kind of bring up from a cinematographical cinematography stance how Spielberg loves physically showing light Mm. and his i mean he loves mist but he does this so that it's not an implied uh you know Mm. light shadow stuff and it makes this beautiful feel like we were watching it uh, just now every time you see just the shaft of light it's hard to imagine how they even light that like in the original shed scene Mm. you can still see elliot so there are other key lights but they've done such a powerful lighting out of the shed that you get this feeling you're standing in the backyard watching this thing happen. It's beautiful. That stuff is so absorbing. It's great. I like hearing Dave talk about shafts. I know I bring this up way too many times, but it still is frustrating to me watching like modern films from like the last few years. And it always bugs me when people's faces aren't lit properly. And I go back and watch a movie like this. You're still in the nighttime. You're still basically seeing that they're in night, but I can still see people and what they're doing. And it always frustrates me. Like, this is so dark. I can't see what anything is happening. Mm. And it happens a lot in modern film. And I don't know why that is. Yeah. I mean, well, the the movie like this, also the lighting is very, it's not naturalistic lighting. It's very theatrical. Which, I mean, not to go on a tangent here, but it was something that kind of uh, frustrated me about the new West Side Story. I was hoping that Spielberg would kind of lean more into that stylistic Mm. uh, mood for the movie. And then the movie does have, like, you know, really beautiful colors and it is shot extremely well. But I think West Side Story is a story that needs to be told theatrically, not realistically. And so if, if he had leaned it a bit more into the wide canyons of California and those like beams of light coming out of the shed for West Side Story, it would be a very different aesthetic. Yeah. In terms of like scariness with this, you're right, Dave, it's not gore. It's, it is suspense. Like that entire sequence in the tent with Elliot, which by the way, I completely forgot that E.T. died. I completely, oh, really? oh. that whole sequence. Oh, I maybe my son was crying. I must've blocked yeah. it out. That whole thing in the tent. I'm like, wait, what? No, they get away. Wait, why are they there? They, they're supposed to get away. Like, what is this? Why is he turning gray? Is, yeah. like, he's literally dying. And like, you're watching Elliot unable to breathe. That whole sequence between Elliot and Keys, where it's just the close-ups and you see the glassiness in Elliot's eyes. Like, that is scary because it's a very real danger. Yeah, I think that's what I'm keen in on is like, again, because this is constructed as a children's movie. Like, even as a kid, I remember that being like, terrifying mm. for me it's like oh this like character i've like devoted emotional weight to is like it's he's they're dying uh and then that's and that's scary and there's a couple of jump scares when the men come into the house for the very first time and they open the door they're just there mm. type of thing mm-hmm. like yeah. there's those types of things um dave because you did have a uh, a skype uh projection of your of your kids sitting next to wow. us yeah um because this folded. is like 10 yeah. years ago I, what was his reaction to this movie well as we know Particularly because uh, my family won't watch any movies that don't have a two zero in the year uh, 
that they were produced. One thing at the beginning that we like sometimes is how slow this buildup is. Right. And he was bored to death at the beginning. It took a little coaxing because as the old film style to introduce all of these elements together, it's very deliberate. And maybe you could criticize that it is still too slow even for adults. It takes quite a while for us to kind of really understand why we should give a shit about any of it, in my opinion. It's not a negative thing entirely, but sitting with my kid, I was like, oh, he's going to leave the room. Mm. But as it builds up, because I think the story is written so well, as it comes up to that final act and everything's kind of coming together, holy shit, like he was staring, he's feeling every single thing that was happening, like joy, fear, when uh, the older brother's racing on the bike to try mm -hmm. to find E.T. and finds him in a fucking ditch. My kid's like freaking out. Now in the tent, I also forgot that he was actually going to die, like pure flatline and end up in a cryo chamber. Right. <laughs> and like my, my son was sobbing. And I'm like, it's going to be okay. Like, just keep watching. Don't give up now because this is what good story is. It's supposed to just suck it all out of you. So they can, if, if it's a positive story, mm -hmm. so they can bring you up to, to the heights. And, you know, basically when, what's the kid's name again? Elliot. Elliot the Elliot. actor. Oh, the actor's uh, when Henry he, Thomas. Henry Thomas. I loved how he set up, you know, when he's faking how he's sick. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's and really then good. in the end, where he's got to pretend that he's sad, my son loved it. Because as soon as he closed the door and he's like crying mm -hmm. to make sure the, uh, whatever, government agent doesn't realize E.T.'s alive, my son was cackling. And you start cheering at the end. It's so exciting. Mm -hmm. It was one of the best BMX bike scenes I've ever seen in a film. It's just- uh, I'll go further because I basically agree with everything both of you have said so far. I, I'm putting it down here. Yes, some of the special effects don't hold up, but- I contend that this is like a perfect last 25 minutes of a movie <laughs> from, yeah. from from the time he is like pretending to be sad up until like that final like cut to black. It's like I would not change a single frame <laughs> that is happening in this film. All my criticisms come kind of before that happens. But that final 25 minutes, I'm like so in it. And see, here's the thing. I don't really have any criticisms about this movie. Any criticisms mm -hmm. I have are just due to like the technology available at the time. Like right. I think most of the special effects still hold up. The one that I'm like, Okay, is uh, when they are flying over all the houses, like it's yeah. very clear that like they're on a green screen and like projecting screen, houses underneath yeah. them. But I mean, it's very clever how they do it. I mean, the yes, it is a little more slow and moving at the beginning, but I think, you know, they start with that really kind of tense scene with E.T. and you don't get to ever see E.T. completely yet. And so you, it already starts off with, you know, a lot of tension and then you feel sad because you see this little, <laughs> little guy all alone not knowing what to do and then we cut to the kids the stupid stupid kids smoking by the way uh in the house it was the mom but yeah yeah they're sitting there with the ashtray yeah. and you're just like what the fuck the 80s were such a weird time oh, i totally thought those like 13 year old boys were smoking i was like yeah probably they, these kids suck i'm sure in 1982 they were smoking when his mom wasn't looking but you know you get because it's it's good storytelling in the sense of like you start with a lot of tension then you get a little quiet and then you jump you jump cut to something completely different and it already and the energy is already very high in that scene so you find a way to come down on it and then you know elliot goes out to the shed has the situation with the ball freaks out so so we know what's probably in the shed elliot doesn't so we're just like waiting for the moment when he when he uh, figures it out i think the two slowest parts of the movie for me and it's just because you're like we know it's coming so we just want to get to it is like <laughs> elliot and et finally meeting it's maybe right. only 10 minutes of screen time between like what ET's end of the end of ET's first scene and like Elliot and ET actually like looking at each other. But those 10 minutes can feel like an eternity because we're like, let's get to it. And then the other part that kind of where it's not even that it's slow because all the things that happen are great. But by the time Gertie and uh, his older brother, what's his name? Mike? Michael. Yeah. Michael, yeah. But when Michael and Gertie 
find out about ET. Like there's a bit of a stretch there where you're like, I, we need more people to start finding out because I can't, <laughs> I cannot watch a whole movie. I cannot watch two hours of Elliot hiding him from everyone. I need more people in on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they bring them in relatively quickly, which I enjoy. I think the only part for me that is like, quote unquote, a slowdown, because I, I don't know, I'm just that person who likes the slow build. I get that I was born in a different time, probably. But it's just like, I like that starting off, seeing him getting, uh, E.T. getting disconnected from his, from his spaceship, coming into the back, Elliot coming out looking for the dog. Like, all that stuff is working for me. Mm. The only thing that really is a bit of a slowdown for me, it's, it, it's kind of just like this really minor quibble, is him in his, like, whatever that is, biology class. And, like, E.T. is, like, at home, like, drinking and watching TV. Mm-hmm. That feels like it goes on a little bit extra long just for me, because it's like, what do we need to know here that they're linked, that we know that they can he can feel his feelings? Although I also find that for a brief moment, it's kind of um, unclear of like, is E.T. controlling him or is it just uh, Elliot yeah. reacting to what he's seen? So, but regardless, that's the only time for me that it's kind of a bit of a slowdown in the narrative. It gets a bit forced there. It's mm. fun because it, there's homage bits, but yeah, mm. it's yeah. a little overlong. And then adding in the Hollywood romance and it's it's like fun as an experiment. It's fun kind of to watch, but inside the narrative of the film, it, yeah, it's like it's a 10 minute sequence of him liberating these frogs. But all of those pieces become useful yes. in that final uh, third. So uh, it, you can't say it shouldn't be there. But, yeah. You but could, there's a moment where you're like, oh, there, man, you, there are definitely it. pockets where like, I think this could, this, like this section could be five seconds shorter. Tightened up. This yeah. thing could be like, it's, it's one of those things where it's 10 minutes and it feels, sometimes it can feel, and you'll, people will say like, oh, cut five minutes mm-hmm. out of it. It's like, no, if you cut the right 45 seconds out, it makes a world of difference. And I say this as someone who, I mean, if you, if, when you guys get to 1984, if you cover this movie, you call me up. But um, sure. Amadeus uh, is a movie mm. where I was top three favorite movies of mine. And I say that every time I tell people about it, I'm like, I know what you're thinking. Two hour, 40 minute long. biopic <laughs> from the 80s. It's a period. Amadeus film. is not Gandhi. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm like, I swear, like, I swear this movie. Mm. You haven't seen it yet. I swear so. this movie slaps. And it's actually a perfect example of like it opens with a bang. It gets you invested. And then like it takes a bit of time after that until like real plot gets going but cellular yeah but by yeah. that point you're like already like what's going on this is to say there's a two hour 40 minute theatrical release and then they released the three hour director's cut which is unfortunately really the only version available for streaming you have to yes. like search. we've actually talked about this on the podcast before <laughs> where it's the only version you can get is the uh, director's cut of amadeus yeah. you can you can buy the theatrical cut on dvd and I'm sure there are right. back alleys where you can find it streaming. But like, if you if you're just doing the <laughs> just guys in trench coats, hey, do you want to buy Amadeus? Yeah, the, 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 the theatrical cut, the two hour forty minute. And you would think, oh, 20 minutes going from two hours and forty to three hours, like can't be that much of a difference. And it's not no, like that the movie. It doesn't make the movie slow. It just makes it a little more long winded. So whereas mm-hmm. the two hours and forty minute version, I'm like, it. I think it's very tight and it keeps moving. You add those twenty minutes, and all of a sudden, just like some of the air let, gets let out a bit. And that's sort of, I think, that sequence of the T where it's, you know, all they really need to shave off is 50 seconds and it'll feel like yeah. eight minutes. Uh, it's basically going from like a whatever this is, an hour and 58 minutes to like an hour and 56 minutes or something like that. Yeah. It would just be all the difference, I think. 100 percent. Yeah, um, it's it's always like a pet peeve of mine when people go, oh, and he's needs to be 20 minutes shorter i'm like no really just five it's just very specific places one other thing i want to call out about henry thomas's performance specifically again when he's pretending to cry mm. the moment that makes me laugh that i had forgotten about is when he's being let out of the room and he sees that the the, the flowers continuing to bloom so he knows that et is there he's like ah, ha, ha, ha. and he like he like he laughs but then he has to turn that into a a sob really really quickly mm-hmm. i just think it's really good the, the fact that it's, it's weird in a way sometimes people are just 
cast and like the perfect performance. Mm-hmm. It's weird that Henry Thomas never had like a huge career until like very recently now being cast in like every Mike Flanagan horror movie mm-hmm. that he's been making here in the last five years. But like he never had anything. He never had any prolonged stuff after E.T. But of, of course, it was also the biggest movie in the world. So that's hard to do. It's the problem with child actors, which mm-hmm. is that what makes you a good child actor and what makes you glow on screen is not what people want as an adult. Like Chloe Moretz Grace is kind of like this too, where as a kid and, you know, in Kick-Ass and as she's into her teens, they're like, oh, there's something very endearing. She's got a baby face, but she's got a potty mouth, but she looks exactly the same now. <laughs> and he just can't take her seriously. This, uh, what's his name? Henry Thompson looks exactly mm. the same as when he did E.T. It's crazy. I mean, that's what you expect. We're human beings. We don't uh, morph into different people. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just didn't work. But he was, it's a Suicide Kings. He's pretty good in that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I think it's also a combination of like right kid for the right role with the right director kind of situation. Mm-hmm. Um, because, I mean, what's so ironic is like Drew Barrymore is the one who really kind of took off after who this movie. breaks out. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, the, the other kid, Michael makes four other movies after this. Like he doesn't do anything. Yeah. Either. Well, I also really enjoy that this movie cast kid actors who like, aren't, you know, gap commercial looking Stars. kids. Yeah. Like right, they they right. look like kids. They look, it's a similar thing with the Goonies. Like the Goonies are a bunch of weird looking kids and I love it. Drew Barrymore did a movie pretty soon after this one where she was like some demon child or whatever. And I just love that. It's like, yeah, she did the original fire starter. Yeah. Was... And I'm, I, I wonder like what the advertising for that was, you know, you know, the little girl from E.T. that you all thought was cute. <laughs> now she's evil. Come see our movie. Gertie has had enough of your shit. <laughs> she's had enough of E.T. eating out of her refrigerator. That's her chocolate cake, bitch. Henry Thomas, I don't know. Like, it, I think part of it is the, the character. I think also it's being a child actor. There's only so many roles you can do before the world has enough of you. And then you have to kind of mm-hmm. grow up and pray that people accept that you accept your puberty. Uh, there are very few child actors where like we did that. Uh, Jodie Foster might be like the prime example where we watched her as a little girl and she went through puberty and we were totally okay with it. And then she became a woman and we were still okay with it. And like right. probably count on one hand. But I mean, yeah. he. the bottom line is that he does give one of my favorite child actor performances. Yeah. He's fantastic in this movie. Yeah. Yes. Drew, Drew Barry is fun because her Gertie is exactly how she is today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if yeah. she did this movie today, you'd be like, yeah, I mean, you know, yeah. she's in her 40s now, but she could pull it yeah. off. I just love her sort of. <laughs> it's all there. Her 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 cute little face in that movie. She's also so deadpan the yeah. entire time. I think what makes her performance yeah. so good is that she. it's almost as if she like wandered on set. And mm-hmm. they just had the cameras rolling. She just ran it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And there's a famous story if you watch any like the making of documentaries on this movie. There's also, I don't know how much like this is marketing. So I want to put a little asterisk beside this, but she uh, really uh, felt connected to the ET puppet like she really thought of it as another actor on set which is why she's like really crying in that scene where he, he dies because he thought she thought oh this person is actually dead yeah. like, that's how she was reacting in that scene so which is also part of what makes that scene so good i mean there's a story in the production that that's why steven spielberg shot it sequentially apparently mm-hmm. the kids were sequestered like they were quarantined and not allowed to kind of commingle because they didn't want uh, other production studios you know and other people to know what they were doing for whatever reason mm-hmm. and so these kids uh were essentially set up to really believe that they were in the storyline, that they were living through it. Uh, And so you get a lot of these genuine performances because they are genuinely uh, upset because they didn't know what was going to happen next, which is fascinating. Moral of the story, children are stupid. uh, There's a story about how one day on set, Drew Barrymore just kept messing up her lines. 
And like mm-hmm. to the point where I think they, were, they had done like maybe a couple dozen takes and finally Steven Spielberg Oof. got so fed up and he started yelling at her. And then he found out she had shown up to work that day with 102 degree fever. And oh so he, you know, and like Spielberg's not like any for anyone can have a bad day. But in terms of like white, straight male directors in this world, and he's one who started in 70s, like he's one of the least douchey ones out there. So when he learned that he like apologized, he hugged her she, and she was crying. And he was like, go home for the day. He's like, go home for the week. Like, go take go rest up, mm-hmm. drink some fluids. And that tells you also like her home, like her mom was like, I don't care that you're almost dying. You're in a movie. You're going to show up on set. And Spielberg's like, take her you're home. You're the third generation Barrymore. Like, you have to continue the line. Exactly. I'm like, I'm sure probably yelled at her mom. Like, you should have told me she was sick. I wouldn't have had her work today. So that's fun. But uh, and then, yeah, apparently there was somebody in the E.T. suit as well. It was yeah. it was a little person, uh, which I and then. But voice done in post is from what I understand. Sure. That would make yeah. that makes a lot of sense. Like apparently a chain smoking woman is who it was. Is it uh, is it the yeah. same woman who did the voice of the devil in Exorcist? I read I don't that remember. She did something in Star people. Wars and she did this and she did <laughs> something else. Yeah, maybe I misread it. I I read that it was a amalgam of all these different mm. things, but it doesn't regardless matter. as far as yeah. like production notes I go guess. like the two i mean the big one that we might as well just call out of course the candies that uh, he coaxes et to come into the house with were supposed to be m&ms but the mars corporation said this might scare children from eating our candy and instead they substitute it with reese's pieces which saved the reese's company <laughs> from going under basically thank you for this movie the other big production note as far as like again going really into the idea that this is a kid's movie and from the child's point of view is that other than the mother character up until very far into the movie, we do not see another adult's face mm-hmm. in this movie. It's all from basically like the wrist or the, the waist down the is what you're seeing people in. So again, keeps that like childlike point of view for, for the majority of this. Yeah, it's shot from that angle of, of like mm-hmm. kid level, which I really love. I also, I just wanted to, I was, I'm on the IMDb page right now and mm-hmm. looking at the cast list. First of all, apparently Deborah Winger has like an uncredited cameo in this movie. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. I guess it's in the Halloween sequence. It says nurse zombie carrying poodle. So when they take <laughs> E.T. out for Halloween, I guess she's there. Sure. My other favorite one is uh, one of the because you know, they have the people who are listed probably in the actual film. And then they have rest of cast listed alphabetically. And there's an actor in this movie named James Kahn. And his role credit is mustachioed medical unit member who confirms E.T.'s death. Oh, I was going to ask you if I thought if you thought it was Francis Ford Coppola. <laughs> it did look a bit like him, now, didn't it? That, I yeah. thought it actually. That's when I went to IMDb. But I'm like, is that Francis Ford Coppola that they have in the? Yeah, who was they were that? all buddies. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, they were. Could have been George mm-hmm. Lucas, honestly, with how they all go. But actually, yeah, yeah, George Lucas is a lot better looking in his youth. Honestly, I mean, they reference Star Wars so many times in this movie. It's it's kind of remarkable. I love that. That you could tell they were buddies because all the toys were Star Wars memorabilia, and it was just the Yoda uh, walking around in the background, and in the right. well, not even the background foreground the of foreground. the Halloween scene. Yeah. Weirdly enough, like I get that that's a some nepotism going on there with bringing in your buddy's other huge science fiction story into this movie. At the same time, it's weird how that feels so natural in this movie because, like, yeah, that was the 80s. Everyone had Star Wars toys. Of course they would be playing with Star Wars toys. People still have Star Wars toys. Like, it's, I, yeah, that's true. that maybe has aged the least of anything in this film. Yeah, uh, yeah like, that, I, it's also, I think it's just such a funny moment when E.T. sees a kid in the Yoda outfit and he, like, starts mm-hmm. walking over to him. It's, I think that's so, it's so clever. It's so cute yeah. and clever. Yeah, yeah. Ugh, this movie's so good. There's some other things I definitely want to jump into, but to go through some of this uh, backstory here, this movie, 
opens up on June 11th, 1982. It is rated 3.8 out of 5 on Letterboxd. It has a 7.8 on IMDb, a 91 on Metacritic, and on Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 99% from 135 critics with a 72% from 250,000 plus users. That's actually kind of what shocked me. It looks like it does look like uh, critics do like this movie way more than like quote unquote like the general public does, which is interesting. Definitely available to buy on DVD and Blu-ray. You can buy or rent this on iTunes or YouTube. And at least here in Canada, you can stream this on Amazon Prime. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking you can stream it on other places too around the world, but that is what is offered here. I need to go off on this. Its budget was $10.5 million. And that is bonkers to me that this movie was made for $10.5 million. My guess after thinking about it is they probably paid the kids a lot less money than what like adult actors were because we talked about Tootsie last week, which was $20 million. Mm. And we've talked about Yes, Giorgio, a very bad movie that was $15 million, which looks so awful. This is like ten and a half million. I don't get how this is made for such cheap. Well, first of all, so cheap. Uh, Tootsie, you know, Dustin Hoffman wasn't coming cheap that year, and they also True had enough. a whole lot of writers they had to pay off went to yes. make that script. Yeah, we talked about that. Sense. You have nine writers you have to yeah. pay it, off on the, that movie. The fact that Tootsie's as good as it is is a miracle, considering what a mess it was going into production. Like they somehow figured it out. That's what we, that's what we talked about last week. Honestly, it was like a. I'm shocked that a movie about a man cross-dressing is actually still fair. Like it holds Holds up up way better than you think it's going to hold up for a 40 year old movie, but also B the amount of writers that are involved and you don't really, you can't really tell that. I don't think Mm -hmm. it does feel like a cohesive piece. Yeah. It's interesting. I I know where this isn't an episode about Tootsie, but I, if I, I, I always love talking about it because I Tootsie is a movie where on paper, Especially now people go, oh, God, I don't want to see that. I'm like, no, I swear if you watch it, like it holds up because the joke isn't that he's in drag. Correct. And and the movie also never people joke about the premise that movie saying, oh, an actor dresses up as a woman because there are no good parts for actors out there. I'm like, no, it's because no one will hire him. Like he, yeah, he's an asshole. Yeah, he's an he's, asshole. It's yeah. not that there are no parts out there. It's that literally no one will hire him. And he is, yeah, he's an asshole. That's, and I think that's what makes the movie get away with it is that he's not viewed as a likable protagonist. And on top of that, uh, the movie discusses sort of a lot of the issues that women face. Uh, I mean, obviously they do mm-hmm. with a lighter hand, but I talked about it on my podcast once, like there's a scene in Tootsie and for 1982, like the same year that you'll probably have like Porky's number three coming out. There's a scene in Tootsie <laughs> right. when, one of the actually act- the original Porky's comes out that year. Oh, okay, original Porky's then. Yeah, with you know Kim Cattrall as the gym teacher who's you know right. sexual maniac. So think of that when I tell you that you know there's this scene in Tootsie when Dustin Hoffman comes home as Dorothy and he has that coworker who's in love with him and insists on coming up and to shut him up because he's singing on the street like brings him up and then he starts like forcing himself onto Dustin Hoffman. And, you know, the man is older, so he's not and he's not exactly Mm -hmm. strong, but, you know, he's still like trying to kiss him, trying to seduce him. And then Bill Murray walks in, interrupts it. And the general is like, oh, I didn't realize you're spoken for. I shall take my leave. Let's not speak to this. Bill Murray goes, you slut. And Dustin Hoffman says, don't joke about that. (laughs) That he's like, that wasn't a funny situation. And I'm like, good on you, Tootsie, for acknowledging like sexual harassment and like near uh, rape when when it happens. Well, well, not to derail this way too much, but you might actually have some insight on this because we had a brief discussion, too, that there was a Tootsie musical. Yes. That was made, but kind of missed the point, it feels like, of what the movie was going for. But I don't know if you ever saw it or I did. Um, I didn't think that the show necessarily missed the point. Uh, I think the show tried to over apologize for the premise. 
And I, I, I still mm. liked the show. I thought the show was very funny. I think that there, there, there was a double-edged sword where they didn't make it soap opera anymore. They made it Broadway, which I get it mm. adds more opportunities for singing, but then it opens up more questions about what it means to be famous, how anyone's sort of not catching on and updating it to modern day also kind of, I thought was a mistake. It should stay in the eighties because it's that kind of tunnel vision, single-mindedness that Michael has that I think is obviously people still have it today, but you can buy into it a bit more if it's 1982 than 2018, 2019. But yeah, the it's also on stage, things have to be bigger. And there's a lot of nuance in the original film. And part of that comes from Elaine May's rewrites. You can like Elaine May's fingerprints are all over Tootsie. You can see where she added scenes and they also made, I mean, the female characters are just as messed up in the movie Tootsie as the men are. And I think the stage show kind of made the women a bit more, put together which made them less interesting uh like the character of jessica lang and tootsie is such a you know complex kind of broken individual and the stage show makes her a bit more put together but one thing the stage show does the stage show did do that i really enjoyed was when michael kisses her as dorothy forgetting that he's michael in the movie you know jessica lang's like i love you but i can't love you and then in the stage Mm. show uh, she's like, you, I'm, I'm, I also have feelings for, for you. She's like, you know, I, I consider myself straight, but we've gotten so close. Let's see where this goes. And I'm like, yes, open that door, Tootsie. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> well, I can't wait for the ET musical. I think that's really. I gonna... was going to ask, is there one? How could no, there not be? I guess I Atari fucked it all up. Be, first of yeah, all, we'll there's like w- one show, stage show with kids that I will watch, and that's Matilda. You know, I <laughs> barely can stand Annie on stage, and it needs to be like the right sort of sarcastic director for it. But yeah, I don't think I can handle an ET musical. All those kids singing a Gertie ballad? No, thank you. <laughs> However, the the twenty minute ET ballet in the middle of it, perfect. Oh, is exactly what the show needed. Exactly. All at on, the beginning, all on when, when they're all on the ship. Yeah, yeah. It's a great opener. Have either of you ever been on the ET ride at Universal? No, I've never no. been to Universal Studios. Yeah. Have you heard I've of been this? to Universal Studios, but for some reason I didn't go on the ET ride. Have you Have you heard of the ride? Yes. No. So, um, you, I mean, the ride is you are in, you know, you you lift off and you're in the air. It's like the Peter Pan ride at Disney World. You know, like you're right. soaring over everything. And the idea is that you're in the bikes. But obviously you're not like in the bikes, you're in a a belted seat. But if you're at the front, uh, because I think it's like nine people or so, if you're in the front center, you have a basket that E.T. is in and like he pops up and down. And yeah, you basically go through the beginning of the movie and then the end of the movie. And, you know, you're in the woods and it's dark and then you soar over the the city and past the moon. And then you drop E.T. off at the spaceship and then you actually get to see his uh, home planet for a little bit. And you see all the other E.T.s and they and they greet you to their planet. Yeah, it's sweet. It's fun. It's fun. This movie made so much money. So I'm only going to talk about the North American box office. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because that's all we've talked about here this season so far. So I thought it was weird if I said the the worldwide box office. But just in North America, this movie made $359 million, which adjusted for inflation is $1.04 billion. This movie made, it became the highest grossing film of all time. It beat out Star Wars. Was the number one movie at the box office for 16 weeks? I don't think consecutively, but for 16 weeks, it was the number one movie. And basically from when it was released in June, almost until the end of the year, it was at least in the top 10. Yeah. Like it just made so much money. And when you take a look at that and you j- again, compare this to Tootsie, which was the second highest grossing movie of the year, Tootsie made 177 million. So it like more than doubled what the next closest movie 
made that year in North America. Yeah, when you adjust Tootsie for inflation, like all, which I think Tootsie might actually have held the record for most consecutive weeks at number one up until that point, because Tootsie, I think, came out earlier in the year from from et like yeah, i feel I like around march or now. something maybe don't call me on this but i think so i think tootsie was like the number one movie in america for like three months straight and then mm-hmm. you know et comes along but well there yeah there's some statistics here so it has i think it uh, this movie and et sorry <laughs> this movie this movie and home alone are the two films that are tied for the most number of weeks where it was above 10 million dollars it was making mm-hmm. <laughs> which was 10 weeks, I think, because it, it did over $10 million. Anyone want to guess? It's actually got kind of probably pretty easy to guess. The next movie that became the highest grossing movie of all time? Oh, I do know what the next what the next highest grossing movie was after this. What is it? Uh, Jurassic Park, wasn't it? Correct. Yeah. So Spielberg beat his own record 10 years later yep. when Jurassic Park gets released. And Jurassic Park holds onto that title for uh, maybe four years. And then another movie comes then along. Titanic yeah. steamrolls it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't understand. And this may be even bitter because I was in high school. Why anybody would watch Titanic more than once? In You're not the a girl, Dave. And people w- like live there for weeks. Mm-hmm. It was a fucking strange. Well, when we get to 1997, I'll be here for that episode and we can talk about it because I, honestly, Dave, <laughs> I have recently rewatched Titanic and I get it. That movie, that movie defies logic because mm-hmm. it's actually very well done. If it, okay, I'll put it this way: Have you seen Les Misérables, Dave? Yes. Of course he has. He's always miserable. Okay. You know how at the end, everyone comes back and they sing, do you hear the people? Will you join in our crusade? If Les Mis did not have those last 90 seconds, that show would not have run forever all over the world. Same way where if Kate Winslet did not get to come back and kiss Leonardo DiCaprio in the last scene of Titanic, that movie would not have made $2 billion. It's about how it all comes together at the end. And I think that is sort of what it does it. And Lindsay Ellis actually had a really fantastic video essay about it um, and sort of like discussing not only that why the movie is better than many people remember but also why it had like so many people keep on coming back to it uh which is sort of like the idea of trying to rewrite history this this is where i think too for this movie in particular i think those last 25 minutes are so perfect that i would come back again and be like, i want that high again yeah. i think it just ends so perfectly it's like of course i'm gonna spend my three dollars and fifty cents for a movie ticket and come back 10 times to watch it oh yeah i'm trying to rem- i'm just trying to remember like modern films like, have we just gotten so convoluted in our storytelling that we just don't have... I mean, this is not fair. We do have films that do this, but uh, this, I mean, I can't speak for Titanic. Uh, Jurassic Park's like this. All these classic, classic... We talk about some of the timeless films, right? Mm-hmm. Like the Casablancas and things that, you know, why is that one remembered and its peers not? But this ability in the end of a film for you to leave the theater and either... Uh, not stop talking about it or want to return to it because it just built up to such a beautiful moment Mm. that it's ingrained, it's etched into your memory. And there's not a lot of films I could throw at you right now over the last couple of years where I could be like that, that's, uh, that's been sitting with me. Yeah. uh, There there are a couple for me, but I mean, it's, I think part of it, Dave, is there is a simplicity to movies like E.T. and Jurassic Park. They are very straightforward Mm -hmm. and plot and whatnot. And as you said, like, I won't say necessarily convoluted, but like, I think a lot of movies, if they're trying to go for the original route, right, they're trying to get ahead of the audience and audiences now were all so hopped up on 
Twitter and video essays that they you know point out the flaws of things and no man, that's not realistic, man. And everyone ever noticed Explain that? Explain the ending of West Side Story to me. I don't get it. Yeah, yeah. that continuity, man. <laughs> there are so many. There are so many things in the world that are imperfect but still beautiful, right? And I think that some people get caught up in the details, not because it's affecting their enjoyment of it, but because they want to be the one to point it out and say, mm. I'm smarter than everyone else. I noticed the thing that no one else noticed. And it's like, no, we all noticed it. It just didn't matter to us because the whole mm. uh, final product is so wonderful. Like you you can pick apart something like E.T. You can pick apart Casablanca and Citizen Kane if you really want to, but the overall product is so good. Also like earnestness makes people uncomfortable now. People don't like yeah. earnest movies. It's one of the things that actually um, I realized when La La Land came out and so many people came so hard for it. And like, that's not a movie that I will defend Till I die. I love it, but it, it, there may be four movies that I'm like on guard. But uh, I think part of what made so many people uncomfortable at La La Land is that it's just, it was earnestly about Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling pursuing their passions. And everyone's like, oh God, these tryhards. I loved that movie until the, the final third, but you know, that's just me. Dave, were you unhappy because they didn't end up together? Is that what made you upset, Dave? I'm trying to remember. I think it's not just that they were, un- but I feel like the tone dragged on in the last 20 minutes where it just, Instead of being like a quick, like, okay, this is not an up, Mm -hmm. this is a downer. It's like, okay, it could be a tragedy. I felt like they pulled that out for 20 minutes of them just being miserable and they stopped singing and dancing from my memory. Yeah, no, they do. That's the the thing about the movie. It stops being a musical when they kind of lose sight of their passion, which again, worked for me. I can understand why it wouldn't work for those. But 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 talk about a movie where I personally think like they stick the landing. I think those last 10 minutes of the movie, that whole like montage sequence. Like that's great. That for me, that's like the hairspray movie where the third act starts to drag and then they do, you can't stop the beat and they just nail it so hard that you're like, yeah, I'll see that 10 more times. (laughs) I don't want them to stop the beat. No, I, for me, this is again, different, um, different ways films are made and marketed and, and produced now. But I think for me, why stuff like this are, are so special or they retain their power is that, there is not this impulse like we need to set up a sequel or a franchise in every movie that we produce, especially like big budget ones. And that's what's frustrating to me is like every movie, even like premiering on Netflix movies, is like, well, we have to set up that there's going to be like a, a side quill mm-hmm. and like a, mm-hmm. and a prequel and also a sequel. And like this is going to lead it's over to this. Like, just make a movie. Yeah. Just make me a movie yeah. that ends. I don't need you to set something else. Well, it's up. bad storytelling, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so are neither of you happy that we have three princess switches on Netflix? <laughs> <laughs> or what's I, the other I, one? Uh, P.S. I love you. P.S. Like, I love you. Yeah, yeah. Isn't there like four of those? P.S. I love you is um that's the Hillary Swank film. You're thinking of To All the Boys I Love. Uh, oh, to right. All the Boys. Which, I how love, dare right. you? Because I I binge watch <laughs> all three of those movies in one day. Those so, were they were so delightful. Too, yes, I was mad I'm about the third saying. one, but it's fine. It's fine, Dave. It's fine. <laughs> How many times? Yeah. How many times can you switch a princess? But no, I I uh, I do I do hate that. You know, I I was gonna just quickly quip. When you were talking about being that aha asshole watching movies, I am totally that person now when I watch, you know, a modern science fiction film, like that is some shitty green screen. Like, oh, well, this is clearly like Red Notice. Like, it's unwatchable yeah. because they're clearly not anywhere other than a studio lot. But I watched E.T. and Kyle, you brought up, you know, some of the special effects. And this is what makes me so angry at George Lucas. Yeah, obviously, these bikes are not flying in the air. Right. Obviously, they're in a studio. But obviously, I don't give a fuck. Because it doesn't matter. That's the power of Spielberg. Mm-hmm. That's the power of the script. It's like, I'm so in it. Yeah, they could, 
I could see the scotch tape on this thing. I couldn't give a shit, right? I just need to see where they end up. The the care and attention to like story, um, performance, that type of stuff. Like I can go back and watch a movie from the 40s and 50s. Like, yeah, like I can tell this is on a set and like that's like a, a painted backdrop. But again, I don't care. This this movie is working for me yeah. in every other level that I'm not focused on that. Well, so two things, uh, special effects and then also the budget, Kyle. First of all, watching this movie, I was actually taken aback by how not like special effects it is and i think that also yeah. helped with the budget being so low is that a lot of it just is in the house uh yeah, you know it's a puppet right yeah and 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 very intelligently done special effects with the puppet and and the flowers and stuff like that i think what makes the bike flying sequence work so well even when like again you of course like you can tell it's not like uh insultingly bad it's not even laughably bad it's sort of like you know you can understand in 1982 everyone's like oh my god but today we're a little more sophisticated and we we can see but i think what when we were talking about sort of the lighting and the smoke and all that at the beginning of the movie, that's out. That's actually very smart directing on Spielberg's part because it's not a natural look for California. It looks like a painting. So when things like the bike flying sequence happen, it doesn't seem totally real. We buy into it because half of the movie doesn't look real. Like it looks like this right. heightened version of the of reality. So it it all blends together and it's really well done. Um, but I also agree with you, Dave. Like the with green screen and whatnot. Like, I think we've also just gotten lazier with special effects. Cause now mm-hmm. they're like, well, we have computers. Yeah. We can do anything. And some of my favorite movies have, you know, almost no computer graphics. I don't know. If, I don't know if either of you ever seen Bram Stoker's Dracula, but that's like some of the most amazing special effects. And there's no computer right. involved right. with it at all. And it's, beautiful and the other thing about the budget kyle uh, mm. hated this word uh first season auteur but <laughs> if steven spielberg's an auteur of anything and he's got a great cinematic look and he tells great stories it's the budget man we watched duel last year mm-hmm. he shot that for 500 grand and it probably is, looks and feels a lot better than most of the films we watched in 1971 right. there's just something made efficient. for tv and it doesn't feel like it was yeah. made for tv yeah there's just something about him the way he sees the world that yeah to your point matt like he makes the inside of a house look cinematic and it's clearly just a house, yeah. right? I mean, it's a big, fu- it's the 80s. Everybody lived in a fucking mansion, but you know, it's, uh, it looks nice. There's just something about it. He just knows he's got a good uh, how to present things. Absolutely. Yeah. He's got a very good eye. Some there, I don't want to like wax too poetic on him because when West Side Story was coming out, you better believe the theater kids were talking about him. Like he was perfect and he had never made a bad movie in his life. Mm, like right, he's right. going to do it perfectly. I'm like, okay, let's all calm down. I know hook is, <laughs> I know hook is a childhood favorite, but that movie is a mess. Um, right. Like I know that, uh, you know, uh, people really like Lincoln. I thought it was dull, but he does have a good eye and it's, if something's going to be a hundred million dollars, you will see it on the screen as opposed to like, yeah. I don't know. There are um, movies out there that you're like, how did this cost $70 million? It's five people in a living room. Well, the plot description for this movie (laughs) is a troubled child summons the courage to help a friendly alien escape Earth and return to his home world. Uh, Now as a part of the show, though, I get to don my uh, favorite game show host blazer and we're going to play the game. Guess that tag. Yes, that tag. There is real taglines that are put on the posters for films. And so I'm going to read you three options. Okay. One of these is the actual tagline for the film E.T. The other two are complete fictions that I have created out of pure nothing. Okay. So I'm going to give you three options and I'm going to get you to guess first here, Matt. So is it all he needs is a friend? Is it he is afraid? He is alone? He is three million light years from home? Or is it simply... 
from the director of Jaws and Indiana Jones comes dot 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 and then E.T. the Extraterrestrial. I'm almost positive I heard the second one somewhere on a poster, so I'm going to say number two. You're going to say number two. Dave, what are you going to guess? I, I blanked. Can you read them? Can you read them again yes. for me? Number one is All He Needs is a Friend. Number two is He is Afraid, He is Alone, He is Three Million Light Years from Home. And the third one is From the Director of Jaws and Indiana Jones Comes. I'm going to go with three. Okay. No, Matt is correct. So it is that. uh, (laughs) Yeah. He's afraid. He's alone. He has three million light years from home. You get the home game of Kyle and Dave versus the machine. (laughs) That'll be sent to you uh, very soon. Is it on an Atari? Yeah. We'll talk. (laughs) It's it's literally just a melted package of Reese's pieces, actually, in the mail. (laughs) From 1982. From 1982. Ooh. Can I say one thing before we close out today? Yeah. I want to give a special shout out to Mother Mary. That's her name, right? The Mom Mary? Mary. Think so? Yeah. yeah. Um, let me, hold on. Where's IMDb? D, D. Wallace playing Mary. Yeah. Mary is trying her darndest. She has mm. three kids. They're around Three kids by herself. She has a yeah. job. She, you know, I'm sure that there are parents out there who will come for this movie because of some of Mary's parenting choices, like leaving, you know, six month old Gertie alone for five minutes <laughs> while she picks up drunk Elliot. But she's trying her hardest. Her husband's gone off with some bitch named Susan to Mexico and she right, just doesn't know what to do. <laughs> so I just want to give her props. You should. So I will say this. This would probably get you arrested nowadays, but I kind of get it. So when I was growing up with me and my brother and sister, my dad was, of course, like, worked like nights and stuff so he would sometimes sleep during the day Mm -hmm. so if my mother had to go somewhere all of us kids had to come and uh i vividly remember times going getting groceries and my mom was like just like read a comic book or just do something here in the car all three of you i'm just gonna get groceries and come back and i honestly totally get it yeah (laughs) just like entertain yourself and i will go and do this so i don't have to wrangle it'll be faster if i go alone and come back yeah I grew up in this era and it wasn't mandatory to wear seatbelts. People who left their kids home alone. It, mm-hmm. When you get home, you just open a door and you fuck off until like seven o'clock at night or after dinner, you just disappear and nobody gives a shit. And I'm mm-hmm. sure parents are worried in one level, but it was, it's not this hypersensitivity. It is of its time. I mean, it is noticeable when she tells Gertie she's going to step out to go pick up Michael. But for me, as somebody who's apparently quite old, it's like pretty normalized. We'll see that. Uh, I don't know if we're going to see any other families in 1980s uh, in the films. We'll see. But that's going to be par for the course in this there, era. There were no <laughs> other families in 1982. Well, that's the this, thing this is one. that's part of the reason why like um, this movie could never get made today because... Well, smartphones would fuck the whole the thing Smartphones up. aside, like... <laughs> We're in the era of helicopter parents. Like what makes 80s yes. kids movies work is like the parents are nowhere to be found. And it's not because they don't care. It's because they're like, I don't know, Mike, like I have stuff to do. And like, I trust my kids to be alone <laughs> for a couple of hours. And like, it's the, what right. are they doing when you're not around? And now it's, you know, you can't, you know, take a breath 500 miles away right. from your parent. And they go, what was that? Are you feeling okay? What's going on? At least in the city. So, so my 13 year old has a two pack a day smoking habit. Whatever. Well, at least whatever. he's at home. He's still a good <laughs> kid. So he's practicing how to back out of, of the driveway in the car. I also love that callback when they are escaping with ET and Elliot's mm. telling Michael, like, go. And Michael's like, I've never driven forward before. I was wondering, right, with that setup when he's trying mm. to back the car, yeah. you're like, oh my God, this kid should not. And then it turns out yeah, it's so mm, crucial yeah. for the movie. Also, great comment. Um, I don't know. So Keys, the dude in the hazmat yeah. suit, I was under the impression we weren't meant to trust him, right? Like when he's having to talk yeah. with Ellie, I'm like, I don't trust this guy. Something about him seems off. His eyes are too big. 
but then he gives Elliot time <laughs> alone. And yeah. then like mm-hmm. when he finds out that they're running off with E.T. and he like goes after them, like you think he's going to stop them or whatever. But then when they're letting E.T. off, like he stands there with Mary and like lets them do it. And then he and Mary are looking a little. In fact, when they escape, he's talking to Mary very chummily. They're kind of standing mm-hmm. next to each other at the end. And I'm like, has someone written fan fiction where Keys and Mary get together? Oh, I'm sure. Is he going to become their new daddy? Well, well, did you read about how this script was developed? No. Yeah, we're going to get into that here in a moment. Oh, okay. Well, then yeah. I won't spoil the surprise, but there's a reason for that. Okay. And I also noticed, you know, in the buildup, you think it's going to be big, bad government and secret agents, but it turns out to be mostly a misunderstanding. I mean, the doctors yeah. are trying their hardest to save this dying alien. Yeah. Um, it is fascinating that twist, and I don't know if it's my expectations or if people in the 1980s were already cynical about it. We talked about a film called Missing, uh, just kind of the relationship the United States culture had with their government in the 80s. I mean, there's distrust because of yeah. Vietnam, etc. But it's not like today. Here, today, we just assume that there's nothing straightforward any government is doing. No, nothing about <laughs> yeah. I could be conflating two different characters, but isn't it Keyes as well who says like, I've been searching for them for, for years. Like it yeah, feels yeah. like he knows that they're around. He just hasn't had proof that they've been coming. Yeah. It's so. like, uh, yeah. Since I was a kid, I always dreamed of this moment or whatever the mm-hmm. line is. Yeah. Uh, he comes off quite uh, empathetic uh, and so not cruel. But, that is uh, uh, Peter Coyote, by the way, yeah. who, who does that, which again, another uh, cool Oscars uh, some, uh, connection here. He used to be the voiceover guy of when people won their awards. It's like, you know, Jack oh. Lemon has won one award before and blah, as they like, walk up to the podium. <laughs> How, far he's come. How far he's come. You know, that is something I also noticed with the government stuff is like, because they seem like the big bad wolf and they're, you know, so imposing. Mm-hmm. And yes, they are, you know, not doing a good job, but they're not, mm-hmm. they're not there and like dissecting ET. They're not like mm-hmm. putting the tape over Elliot's mouth, like, shut up, kid, let us do our work. Like, they're they're doing their job. They're checking his stats, and when he seems to be dying, they like try to save him. They just don't know. They don't know what to do, and no one listens to Elliot because something like ET, something else that I was thinking about um, while watching, especially the last third of the movie. So you could argue like, oh, the, are these kids really smarter than these adults? You know, at every you know, out running mm-hmm. them at every turn. And I don't think that's the case. I think it's just one of many situations in movies where like adults under estimate kids and what they're capable mm. of so I, I don't know if like these adults are battling with a full deck against these kids because they probably thought they didn't have to and then it turns out these kids are mm-hmm. smarter than they realized so this has uh we've talked about henry thomas as elliot drew barrymore as gertie robert mcnaughton as michael peter coyote as keys was there anything else you wanted to say about any of those actors dave no i didn't really do any backstory been too busy the only thing i guess is um everybody knows all about drew baron we just had to bring up in our pre-chat that she was married very briefly to a canadian comedian a weirdo named tom green which i think yeah. is funny uh she was almost she was offered the part for showgirl hmm. and she turned it down because she didn't want to be naked in it and it turned into showgirl so interesting there you go. wait right. which part was she going to be in showgirls is she going to be elizabeth the main yeah oh. elizabeth yeah whatever her name yeah. was that would uh, a very different movie saved I by the bell. it would have had eight sequels and then i didn't know this that she's the godmother of kurt cobain and courtney love's daughter oh i didn't know that they were a thing but they're apparently that close yeah. so she's the godmother francis bean mm. well the cinematography is by a guy named Alan Davio. Uh, his top three other than this movie are Empire of the Sun, Bugsy, and The Color Purple. Written mm-hmm. by Melissa Matheson, directed, of course, by Steven Spielberg. This is the very compressed, as much as I could, uh, kind of backstory here. So this began 
first and foremost, is the story from Spielberg himself. Uh, it kind of generated from after his parents' divorce, which, if you know about anything about history of Steven Spielberg, very much influenced his creative output. But uh, he started having this imaginary friend, and then he asked the question, well, what if this imaginary friend wasn't imaginary? So that was like the impetus of this. So when he started to collaborate with screenwriter Melissa Matheson, they started with a project called Night Skies. That was what this movie was going to be called. It was something that had begun right after Close Encounters and would eventually not actually be produced because what he found was when he was working on the set of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark during 1980 and 1981, he was on set and he was like, he's doing this scene where he's blowing up Nazis. And he's like, you know what? I want to come back down <laughs> to something that is feel uh, maybe a bit more realistic. It's not like in, uh, leaning a little bit more into like uh, this B-movie um, serial type of uh, storytelling. So something spiritually closer to Close Encounters. And Matheson, who was visiting the Raider set and would eventually marry Harrison Ford, was uh, brought to tears as they developed this story. Uh, and within a year had this uh, new rough draft called E.T. and Me. Now, Matheson previously had written the 1979 film The Black Stallion. She would go on to write stuff like Indian in the Cupboard in the 90s, Kundun, and then the English translations for the Studio Ghibli movie Ponyo. That's her big. I just watched that. I was so I was gonna. I was waiting for someone to bring that up. She wrote the English transla translation of Ponyo, which uh, is mm. the background of my uh, phone. <laughs> oh, you can't see it, but yeah, we but just watched it yesterday. You can sing the song from that, can't you? I can. Well, I can sing the yeah the chorus in Japanese. Japanese version. Ponyo, 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 mm. Saka no no ko. That's all I'm gonna give you. <laughs> that was pretty good. Yeah. Thank you. When we talk about night skies, like the original idea here would it was much more of a scary, like a horror film almost, as like the aliens would be like the evil people within the movie. But again, when he was on Raiders decides, no, I kinda wanna go in a different direction, really focus on the kids. He really wanted to focus on childlike innocence rather than make a horror movie again. Uh, he was with Columbia at this point. He had signed this, like, I forget, a, a certain number of movies he was supposed to have been making for them. And so they knew he was working on Night Skies. And he kind of says, no, I'm not making Night Skies anymore. I'm actually putting a stop to this. I'm going to go in this E.T. direction. Very famous makeup and animatronics uh, person, Rick Baker, had been working on some designs and got so mad that he had to throw all this stuff out that him and Spielberg just had this huge split. And they never worked with each other again, I don't think. Which gave... Carlo Rambaldi, the opening to develop the design of E.T. we know today, you would know him because he developed all the prosthetics and suits for the movie Alien. So that's so he had had that uh, background here already. And so Columbia really wanted this movie called Night Skies and Spielberg didn't want to make the movie Night Skies. Also kind of simultaneously at this and I cannot verify this. So this could have been a fever dream, but I seem to remember the West Side Story junket that Spielberg was on last year saying that this was he had actually originally pitched a musical, not of E.T., but just a musical in general that he wanted to do now as the last film to finish off his Columbia contract. And they just flat out said no. Mm. So I was like, OK, fine. I'll pursue this E.T. thing more in depth. Yeah, well, there's a rumor that uh, that's what led to the Anything Goes number in the second Indiana Jones movie. He's like, yes, oh, I'm not allowed to make a musical. He, yeah. Well, screw you. I'm going to do this. I'll open up Indiana Jones 2 with the musical. <laughs> For no reason. Just because he can. He's Steven Spielberg. Columbia actually really wanted a sequel to Close Encounters. That's what they were pushing for. They wanted a Close Encounters sequel. Even closer? Sequels are so weird. <laughs> yeah. Um, closer Encounters are the fourth kind. <laughs> after Spielberg and Matheson decided to go in the more family-friendly direction, the then-president of Columbia got super pissed. That was a, this guy by the name of Frank Price. He's actually quoted as saying um, that Columbia was not interested in making some wimpy Walt Disney movie. 
I'm sure you probably had some more expletives put into that. But Sid Sheinberg, though, who was president of MCA, the parent company of Universal Studios in the 80s, what just so happened to be a friend of Steven Spielberg's. And so this is what they did. MCA approaches Columbia and says, we'll give you $1 million to actually take the rights of E.T. away. In addition to that $1 million, we will give you 5% of the net profits. And so Columbia says, fine, whatever. We don't care about this project anyway. Take it. However, what this would happen, I don't know if this is like 100% true, but it sounds like it probably could be. With that 5% of the profits that they got from E.T., E.T. gave them more money than any movie Columbia actually released that year (laughs) for a movie they had really nothing to do with. Mm. Once it was released and made so much money, that is when a bunch of controversies started to happen. First was Satyajit Ray, the acclaimed Indian director uh, known for the Big City and the Apu trilogy. He had written this screenplay in 1967 called The Alien, um, which does bear a pretty close resemblance to the plot of E.T. Like it's pretty very close to the actual plot points of E.T., Right down to the fact that the actual central character of the alien was quoted as being a cross between a gnome and a famished refugee child with a large head, spindly limbs, and a lean torso, which is how you could describe the E.T. that we know today. Mm. Ray, of course, would not uh, pursue legal repercussions for this. He actually ended up loving the movie, but uh, Spielberg says he never saw this script or would never have access to it which is actually untrue. He would have been around when the script was floating around his campus. And even Martin Scorsese believes that he adapted that movie into the movie E.T. So who knows? The other big one was in 1984, the playwright Lisa Litchfield sued Steven Spielberg for $750 million because she claimed that E.T. was a ripoff of her one-act play called Loki from Maldemar. That was eventually dismissed because the judge ruled that there was not significant similarities, like very general plot things that were the same. And you can't claim copyright over certain plot points. Mm. This, of course, would make a bunch of money, as we said. Night Skies, just as a little aside here, the initial concept and part of that script was written would spin off into a bunch of other projects, namely Poltergeist, which also came out in 1982. And a lot of people think Spielberg actually directed that movie, too, but he's not credited as doing it, as well as Critters, Gremlins, and Signs, all basically are adapting Night Skies into a different story. There was a discussion for a sequel. It was going to be called E.T. 2 Nocturnal Fears, which would have been Elliot and his friends getting kidnapped and then having to have E.T. rescue them. But that was eventually stopped because Spielberg liked the idea that this was just a singular movie, that it didn't need to continue on. Uh, It would get nine Academy Award nominations, uh, which would further cement uh, and sorry, and further cement Spielberg's dominance at the box office, influencing culture. And we'll talk a little bit more about that here in just a few moments. Steven Spielberg is my daddy. Talk about smoking. I like the the fact that the kids are playing D&D at the very beginning of this movie, Uh Uh, mostly because that was considered like the devil's game at that time. So it's interesting that that's how they open this up. What does that mean? The devil's game. Oh, like they thought it was Satanism. Like there's the sat- the satanic really? panic in the 80s. Read up on that if you want to have more information. Everything was about Satan. I love the fact too that the kids grab knives when they say like there's an intruder or something mm-hmm. in the backyard. It's like they're yeah, going to grab a crazy. knife. Like what they're going to do with that. This is not a hot take or anything like this. But just as the question, we are supposed to assume too that like E.T., the character of E.T. is also a child. Like it's not an adult yeah. version of that species. Yeah, that I, I got that implication as well, that this is not a mm. fully grown extraterrestrial. I didn't even cross my mind. You don't get a good look at everything else, but they all look the same. Oh, yeah, I, interesting. I just thought of something. Uh, this is just a detail that I thought was, it was a really clever way of having the audience be ahead of the characters. So we saw, we see in the first scene that when uh, E.T.'s people are leaving, uh, his heart starts to glow, right? 
Yes. And then it happens again when he's phoning home uh, in Elliot's house. And then when E.T. dies and Elliot and he's in the cryogenic chamber, whatever it is, and Elliot's having his goodbye to him, Elliot then closes the uh, chamber. Misses. And you can see red underneath the glass. It's And for someone like Spielberg, who usually loves to let an audience know exactly what they should be feeling at every single moment, like he will not let a beat go by. He's like, catch that. That's supposed to be sadness. Uh, I thought it was very cool in that moment that it's it's a little further away. It's not it's a little off center in the screen. But if you're watching the screen, if you're paying attention, you see it and you're like, ah, yeah. ah, ah, his heart's lighting up. It's I think I it's can imagine really the whole theater. It's a great it's a great yeah. moment. Like, ah, yeah, I can imagine the whole theater. Yeah, the whole going, gasping, ah, like, turn around, yeah. turn around. Exactly. Yeah. It's great. They they have to do the Uranus joke in this movie because every kid does that my, at least once growing up. My son had a good laugh. Once again, this movie's so good at showing how kids just <laughs> suck. Like they think they're the only ones. They think they're the only ones yeah, that come up with any joke before. And I do love the uh, that whole bit, bit where he's like, "You get it? He doesn't get it. You get it? He doesn't get it. You get it? He doesn't get it." And I'm like, yeah. "You two both have five brain cells between you. Shut put up. together, yeah." I think, Matt, you've just been around a lot of annoying kids. Well, I did just <laughs> get back from Disney like World where it's all, <laughs> yeah, so all the kids. The, the answer is yes. I loved uh, that one kid, as I'm wearing my cans, mm. was wearing the radio headset. Holy yeah. shit. How did that fit on his head? That yeah, And this is so before gigantic. micro anything. That thing must have weighed like seven, eight, nine pounds. Well, incredible. Explains why he's so neck. stupid, that kid. If it, <laughs> yeah. A lot of radiation. Down. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I like that this, uh, with E.T. this week, this is the second character uh, that we've seen cross-dress this year after Tootsie. Oh, brother. Love it. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> Gender's Love a construct. It. Uh, Get into it. What is, this is, a, I honestly had this question, what does dressing as a terrorist in 1982 mean? Because that's what Actually, she says for this. probably similar to now, isn't it? Because uh, what's going on? Is it the Iranian conflict in... Hold on. That's what I don't know. Because you, know, you never actually get to see what, what that done. costume looks like. Yeah. All you hear yeah. is her say, get out of that costume. You can't dress as a terrorist. Yeah. And then you see him dress up as like the hobo after that. So, so The South American peoples are all in the 60s. I'm pretty sure... That whole Contra Iran, the first conflict. Yeah. I was say it's it's got to be 80s. something from like Middle East. I would say, right? I think yeah, so. Because so be- all the bad guys in the eighties were that until Cold War, yep. and then they became Russian. Russian. I mean, this is still Cold War, but you know, it opened up yeah. storylines to all the Russians. Exactly. But- so that's and and he's you know thirteen, fourteen. So I'm sure it's something really simplistic and uh, insulting. Mm-hmm. So brown face. For sure. Oh, 100%. Probably. Yeah. Um, We're very glad that the movie dodged that ball. <laughs> yeah. We, we, I don't think we can go this entire episode without bringing up the John Williams score, which is one of his best, I think. I, I just love the E.T. theme. Mm-hmm. The first time they go off on the bikes is so great. Uh, I think I'll call it that scene, like that, 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 that him going like crazy on the timpani at the very end as it crescendos to the end in the black screen. Perfect. I love it. Did I, did I imagine it or did he do a call out to the Star Wars theme when Yoda was on screen? Oh, could have. No, it, it just felt like them. it like built quickly into the, the Star Wars and then it, it mellowed out. It's but. entirely possible. John Williams is really good at creating themes for films. Like, you know, Star Wars, yeah. obviously, Jaws, E.T., Harry Potter, like certain things where everyone just goes, oh, yes. Indiana it is Jones, theme from that Jurassic movie. Park. Yeah. <laughs> if you need some brass, that guy does brass. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, it's fun. He's he's famous for a reason. This music's beautiful. Unlike, I mean, Tootsie's a little cheesy. I can't believe it won. Yeah, it's very eighties. It's a very eighties score. <laughs> it is a very eighties like score. Pop music. I don't mind it. It 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 adds to the aesthetic of the film. 
Yeah, it's of its time. Yeah. And then I don't think you've seen it, Matt, but we will always hate on Yes, Giorgio. But that was <laughs> never heard of that movie worst. until today. Yeah, you, it, there's a oh. reason why. It's the only movie that Pavarotti starred in, and it's it's a bad movie. Don't watch. Sounds that about right. <laughs> Awful. Sounds about right. Yeah. Although speaking of fun '80s scores, we're like it's both very clever and also very '80s. I don't know if either of you have ever watched Working Girl. Uh, yeah. Personal yeah. favorite of mine. The musical score for that is really just Carly Simon's "Let the River Run," but done <laughs> differently every scene. So like here it is as a sad clarinet. Here it is as a string quartet. Here it is on an organ. So and it works. It's like it, you're the first time you watch it, you don't you aren't really clocking it. But if you've watched it as many times as I have, you're like, oh, this is all just <laughs> "Let the River Run" in any possible genre and style you can think of. It's amazing. Kyle hated Tarzan for that reason. I just got sick of Phil Collins. <laughs> of hearing the same Phil Collins song over and over and over again. The yeah, animated, never really come at me. I don't care. I'm, it's a good movie. I did not like Phil Collins. <laughs> How hard. No, we just watch Hercules. That 90s run on the animated side, there's a lot of good movies, man. Underrated. Rena- yeah. The Renaissance is, Renaissance is a good era yeah. for Disney, for sure. We're done here. Well, the machine has said that we do need to wrap some things up here. So first and foremost, let's get into some critics' choice here. So this is the part where we discover what some of the critics thought at the time this film was released, sort of, Um, because we're going to talk about Roger Ebert and Pauline Kael's uh, reactions to this, both positive. Uh, Ebert's review actually is from the 20th anniversary re-release of this film, Um, but he was positive when it first came out, too. This is the part where I this is um, if you want a five dollar word in your arsenal. Uh, his review is an epistolatory review, meaning that he Ooh. writes it in the form of a letter <laughs> instead of just writing a review. He's actually writing a letter to somebody. It's like he studied English or something. Yeah. So he writes, the camera watches Elliot moving around and Raven, that's one of his grandsons uh, or granddaughters. And Raven, that's when you asked me, is this E.T.'s vision? And I said, yes, we were seeing everything now from E.T.'s point of view. And I thought you'd asked a very good question because most kids your age wouldn't have noticed that the camera had a point of view, that we were seeing everything from low to the ground as a short little creature would view it and experiencing what he or she would see after wandering out of the woods on a strange planet. While we were watching, I realized how right you were to ask that question. The whole movie is based on what movie makers call point of view. Almost every single important shot is seen either as E.T. would see it or as Elliot would see it, and things are understood as they would understand them. There aren't any crucial moments where the camera pulls back and seems to be a grown-up. We're usually looking at things through a child's eye or an alien's. So that's what he had to say about this movie, which we've called out. Pauline Kael also liked this movie. Uh, this is like a... The only thing I could find is like a very like compressed version, I think, of her entire review because it's like two sentences long. But it's uh, Steven Spielberg's movie is bathed in warmth and it seems to clear all the bad thoughts out of your head. It's the story of a 10 year old boy, Elliot, who feels fatherless and lost because his parents have separated and who finds a miraculous friend, an alien, inadvertently left on Earth by a visiting spaceship. This fusion of science fiction and mythology is emotionally rounded and complete. It reminds you of the goofiest dreams you had as a kid and rehabilitates them. It puts a spell on the audience. It's genuinely entrancing. Two long sentences. Uh. (laughs) She likes her run on sentences, yes. We have to ask the question we ask every week. Matt, do you think that this holds up and is it still culturally relevant? No. After this Never whole episode, this movie. I do an about face. No, of course this movie holds up, and of course it's culturally relevant. The proof is in the pudding. Where a lot of people have a hard time with criticism, and we were talking about this earlier, is you know, well, I don't like it. It's like you cannot like this movie. There, there's no movie yeah. that everybody likes. 
but you cannot tell me that this movie is poorly made. You cannot tell me that this movie doesn't work. And you can't tell me that this movie isn't culturally relevant because it is well-made. Like it's just, the proof is in front of you and it's being culturally relevant is proof just that it's everywhere. Still people know what you're talking about when you say ET phone home. Mm -hmm. Dave. Yeah, I agree. This is uh, one of those transcendent films. It is become uh, amazing that how many of those Spielberg himself has been involved in. <laughs> you say Jurassic Park and every single person knows what a dinosaur looks like now, but mm -hmm. uh, this movie is timeless. I was surprised, frankly, when I watched it, that it wasn't going to be schlocky or cheesy or really kiddie. It turned into, uh, speaking of Ponyo, I mean, Ponyo is great, but Ponyo is a kid's kid's movie, yeah. right? I mean, it, it doesn't punch at anything other than just having beauty and fun and kind of fantastical whimsy stuff. It's it's great. Emerson was cheering the whole time. But this thing's got a lot more depth to it as well. And mm. I loved it. And I think if you somehow, if you're listening to this podcast, you've probably seen it, obviously. But if you haven't seen it, you need to see this movie because... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm, like, I'm of course a yes and yes too. I think the, the, the thing that I just want to leap off of that, Dave, is that like, of course, yes. Like if you, we're just talking about plot and, and the way this is done, it's like, yes, this is a kid getting an alien back to a spaceship i get that but i think where it can be a little bit deeper is that um as with good art you can kind of infuse your own story into that a little bit because i think like thematically this is also about letting somebody go right you love this being you're connected with them but it's better if you let them go back to where, where they're there so would you want to put that as a death metaphor if you just want to put that as like a friendship that you had once but they're better off one? by themselves sure. like a relationship yeah. ending like all that i think you can like imprint onto this movie too if you really wanted to absolutely agreed with all of that so uh it was nominated for nine academy awards including best original screenplay best director best picture it won nine including best score or sorry one nine it won three best score best sound and best special effects on the most recent AFI list of the best American movies, it was rated the 24th best movie of all time from America. Also from AFI, the uh, line E.T. Phone Home was rated as the 15th best quote of all time. Uh, and in 1994, the film was added to the United States National Film Registry of the Library of Congress, who deemed this culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. There are two offshoot properties of E.T. that I just want to like very quickly talk about. They could be podcasts to themselves. But does anyone know about the Michael Jackson album from this movie? No. What? Okay. Michael Jackson loved this movie. Loved this movie. And so he spearheaded this production of an audiobook based on this movie where it included the, the John Williams score part of it. While he, Michael Jackson, narrated it, and there was an original song placed at the beginning and ending of the audiobook. It's about 40 minutes long. I listened to it today on YouTube. What? <laughs> yeah, so it's a 40 music and, music narration. Well, and is it good? I, like, it's good. Like, it's made for kids. Like, it's very much, like, made for kids to, to do. And it's literally just the E.T. story told in 40 minutes. It was produced by Quincy Jones, recorded at the same time he was creating Thriller. So literally, wow. he's in the booth doing Thriller and also doing this thing at the same time, which is why at the Grammys, uh, and I guess it would have been 1984 because these two albums would have come out in 1983, he wins a, like a record setting amount of Grammy Awards for Thriller and also won Best Kids Album that year for this. Oh, wow. Um, however, here is where the controversy has. This came out from MCA Records. They produced the album um, and they were allowed to record the audiobook on two conditions. That if it was released, that sorry, that it had to be released 
uh, after December 1982 so that it didn't compete with Thriller that was also going to be coming out very soon. And that the song that he recorded for the album, Someone in the Dark, was not released as a single. Uh, MCA breached both of those things. It it was actually released in November of 1982. And then Someone in the Dark was released as a single. And so, uh, as you might expect, uh, Columbia got really mad at MCA. And it made it so that uh, Jackson could never work with MCA ever again. It was actually barred in his contract going forward. He was never able to do that. And all these albums were pulled from shelves. It was actually recalled. (laughs) So you couldn't actually even buy it. So just as a, this is, I'm only going to play like. It's like the film Missing. Exactly. That is the artwork that you're seeing there right now on on your screen, uh, which is very 80s here. E.T. looks like a very tender lover in this photo. Uh, Yeah, this is very feminine ice, right? (laughs) Yeah. It's totally different than the film. Yeah, if you want to describe this, it's basically like the really awkward like graduation photos where someone is like grasping their prom date from behind, but it's E.T. behind Michael Jackson. The friendliest light was coming from a kitchen window. So this is basically what it's doing, right? He's really just narrating what's happening in the story. I love how he says tool shed, by the way. Elliot looking for his dog in the backyard. Heard strange noises coming from the tool shed. Anyways, that is basically what the audiobook is. Interspersed with like some of the score and again those songs that play uh, at, at, at the very, very end. Okay. <laughs> that is what that book is. Wow. Hello. They should call you Wes Craven because I have a new nightmare. The second big piece of media that comes from this, do either of you know the, the backstory of E.T., the extraterrestrial, the video game released for Atari? Ruined, ruined This is very, a pretty famous story because it essentially um, killed the video game industry in America. Like it actually burst the well, bubble. Temporarily. Arcade, temporarily, not, of course. Not video game... Uh, you should say arcade industry. Sure. Um, but it also basically killed Atari, like really as a major player in America. Yeah. Um, so because of the tie-in to the world's biggest movie, Atari was sure that they had this huge hit on their hands. Two things were going against them. The game itself was not very good. Like it was just a bad video game. But also, I think they were anticipating this to like move units of Atari as well. Like people were going by the game and Atari and it just did not happen. While... The game initially sold something like, I forget, like 2 million copies. 790,000 of those were returned. Like, there's tons of returns. There was an additional 3 million that were completely unsold ever. And there was this epic loss on Atari's hands. So much so, this used to be an urban legend, but I think has actually been proven to be true in recent years, which is they just got this landfill outside of New Mexico buried it with just et cartridges buried it covered it in concrete <laughs> like it's just there's just an entire landfill of just et cartridges that they had to was it near roswell don't know but that is uh not until the nintendo entertainment system in 1985 in america would like the video game industry again kind of take off so those are the two big things from et that uh people know about as well um anyways we need to rate this film before we do uh, that is what Dave and I thought. What do you think? You can send any feedback to Machine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. We also release two videos each week on our YouTube channel that matches the movie we're talking about that week. On Mondays, we react to the trailer, and then on Fridays, it's a mini-review of that film. 
And if you want to see the entire list of films we've uh, watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our Letterbox page, letterbox.com slash KDBSTM. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the next apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There is a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as a dollar per month. Something you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. Matt, if you were asked to rate this movie out of five, what would you give it? Five. Very easy five. 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 Dave, what do you think? Yeah, I'm going to go with five as well. Yeah. Whoa. I'm actually surprised, to be honest. Well, this is this is what uh, blockbuster films are supposed to be. Yeah. Just fun. <laughs> it's evergreen, too. And you got you to gotta reward points for evergreen, you know? I am going to be... The contrarian, a little bit. Like I'm, re- I'm rating this four point five out of five. I think just those couple of little weird little <laughs> quibbles I had prevented from like the perfect five here for me. But I would watch this anytime mm. someone wanted to watch this movie. There's and like I said, I think the final twenty five minutes for me are like literally perfect. Yeah. I would, <laughs> I think they're like great, great filmmaking. Dave, this has now happened three times in a row. ET is going to then enter our list at the number one position. Woo. So we'll see. If it's able to retain that or not. Um, I am excited to see what we get to watch next week here, though. So I'm just going to push this button. Oh, my prognostication was correct. Yes. Next week, we're going to be watching Gandhi. So uh... (laughs) I look forward to your thoughts on whether it was worth any of its Oscars. I have to say this, like. I don't want this to like preclude my judgment too much. I'm actually really not looking forward to watching this movie. I have to tell you, it does look so stuffy and stuff like that, which is usually the biopics I hate the most. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. Maybe I'll be pleasantly surprised. Maybe I'll, just, I'll be come on next week and be like best movie of 1982. Wow. Imagine <laughs> if there's like a, a lining Gandhi that like should be in the AFI top 100 quotes or something like that. Like they call me Mr. Gandhi, bitch. Like <laughs> <laughs> And like, backhand someone across the face exactly and there's like oh, there's a there's a fight in in jello I, I did not expect that to happen this movie is interesting acrobatic nuns exactly. uh, it's happening <laughs> the dream ballet who knew that was coming matt if people wanted to stay in contact with you see what you're up to what is the easiest way for them to do so they can find me on instagram at matt Coplick, uh usual spelling they can dm me they can do all the things there uh, I don't have a website, so that's the only way to really contact me directly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then if they want to listen to my voice some more, they can listen to Broadway Breakdown, available literally anywhere that you podcast. Excellent. And um, I guess as a final question here, if you could get any type of property, whether movie, play, book, whatever, that you would want to see a musical of, what do you think should be musicalized that hasn't been yet? I actually talked about this on another podcast recently. I want to take the movie musical funny face with audrey hepburn and i want to adapt Mm. that to stage make some tweaks to it and get some fun uh movie stars in there i think that'd be a fun property to see on stage that'd be fun are you talking about funny face the movie that makes me want to believe that audrey hepburn has a funny face oh 100 the movie that's the movie that hinges on the idea so dave i don't know if you are aware of funny face but it hinges on the idea of everyone going hey see audrey hepburn over there hot take here what if we put her in a magazine and everyone's like what <laughs> it's like yeah it's, it's audrey hepper <laughs> well to be fair to be fair there, no one ever says that like she's ugly or anything they say they do say right. some of them say that she's got a funny face obviously because of the title but their issue with her is more that she's her character is just a pain in the ass they're like oh right. i don't want to go to paris with that girl uh and then when they put her in like normal clothes they're like oh look at you you're audrey hepper so it's fun <laughs> it's a fun movie she has such a sad life
Steven Spielberg is my daddy.